It's a pleasure to be here, humbled to be bringing the word uh, for you this morning. It's actually my first time uh, to be preaching and teaching in the second service. I, I went around and, and just was kind of introducing myself to, to a few of you, and, and some said, I've actually never seen you before. And that's okay. Uh, I, actually, I haven't actually been in the second service for, for some time, uh, but humbled to be here, excited to be here. Um, I'm generally practicing, or I guess not practicing, but participating in the first service, and, and usually behind the lectern. Um, I, I like this pulpit, though. It's a little bit smaller. My wife, Christy, actually tells me every Sunday that I'm in the lectern. Uh, she tells me how small I look uh, in, in the lectern. Uh, actually suggested that I bring a stool this morning for the first service uh, while I stood in the big pulpit. Um, I didn't. I told her, I said, listen, if Dr. Sam Lamerson doesn't stand on a stool, then I'm fine because I've got that guy by at least half an inch. So feeling pretty good about it. All right, let's get, let's get moving here. Reality is uh, that this morning has nothing to do with me or whether or not I'm standing on a stool. Uh, or not. Uh, This morning has everything to do with Jesus, right? Lifting his name high, raising the banner of of the transforming power of his gospel of grace. So I'm going to really work hard at just getting out of the way, right? And just projecting Jesus. So turn with me, if you can, to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. That'll be our passage this morning. I want to continue in the same trajectory of thought uh, of, uh, that Pastor Rob has been working through in the last several weeks uh, with his Upside Down Kingdom sermon series. Uh, I particularly want to pick up on what he preached last week uh, about this upside down community that Jesus calls us to as a church. And so please follow along with me as I read this extremely rich and and powerful passage from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and may God richly bless the reading of His holy and inspired Word. Starting in verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you now. After we've rehearsed through song, through prayer, through confession, through assurance that that we are desperately in need of you. Lord, that we, we need your grace here among us this morning. Lord, to open our ears to hear, to soften our hearts to receive. Lord, I pray that that your words speak to us this morning and that they go down into the deepest fibers of our being, that we would leave here changed, transformed by the amazing grace that you give to your children. Lord, we thank you. We lift your name high and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is a friend really a friend if he can't stand your wife? 
Is, your, is a friend really a friend if he can't stand your wife? All right, imagine this scene with me. You have a friend, right? Every time he or she comes to your house, right? Uh, hang out, watch the game for the guys, have tea for the ladies or, you know, whatever you guys, ladies do. Um, every time they come over, he or she is constantly taking jabs and, and talking down to your spouse, Right, so every time your, your wife walks into the room, your friend is sighing and rolling his eyes at everything she says and doing it to her face and just constantly berating her. Is that friend really a friend? Right, is a friend really your friend if he can't stand your wife? Pocket that question. We'll get back to it. Pastor Rob mentioned last week uh, that we live in a time right, when people... Christians, non-Christians alike, people don't really like church, right? They, they don't like the idea of church. They don't really even like going to church, right? There's this, this ever-increasing disenchantment and, and growing disgruntled attitude toward the, the local church and, and any kind of organized religion or institution for that matter. And it's an interesting shift. Spirituality is fine. Right? When people say, I'm a spiritual person, I even like Jesus, but I don't do the church thing. It's really thought of in so many ways and in so many circles as the church being this oppressive and largely irrelevant thing. And the bottom line is people look at church as a waste of time. So you have, you have non-Christians avoiding the church, and tragically, you see disillusioned Christians avoiding the church, waffling about the relevance and, and real need of even attending corporate worship on Sunday mornings. Today, we're going to spend our time looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, because my hope is what this passage brings us to is this place where we absolutely grow in our deep love and affection for Jesus, but we also are brought to this place where we understand a need to love his bride, the church. And this is not because uh, the church is perfect. It's not. It's full of imperfect people, including uh, the, the pastors on staff and, and everyone that's leading here on Sunday mornings. The church is not perfect. It's, it's flawed and messed up, but she is nonetheless Christ's bride. And the Bible paints this beautiful picture of Christ and the church's husband and wife. Christ loves his church. He pursues the church, gave himself up for her and makes her beautiful and is continually doing that work. The church and Christ are inseparable as husband and wife. So as we navigate through our passage this morning, my hope is that not only will you fall more in love with Jesus, but also that you will grow and increasingly develop an appropriate love for the church, for this church. Because what kind of friend can't stand the wife, the bride of their Savior? Our passage tells us two very fundamental truths about the bride of Christ and paints this beautiful picture of why we should love the church. Here's what we learn, these two things. First, we'll learn how we are the church. And then secondly, we'll learn who we're supposed to be as the church. And that'll serve as our outline throughout the morning, how we are the church and who we're supposed to be as the church. And just to break it down quickly for you, in verses 22 through 25, 
We learn that the church is supposed to be a, a particular kind of Christian community, that we are called as the church to be a people that are shaped by certain characteristics. Uh, we see it articulated in the text with three exhortations, each exhortation beginning with let us, right? Verse 22, let us draw near to God in faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast to the hope of the gospel. 24, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up and encourage one another in love and good works. Oh, okay, so, so drawing near in faith, holding fast in hope, and stirring up in love and good works. Faith, hope, and love. Characteristics of what ought to define us and every Christian community. It's what we're supposed to be as the church. But see, before we can make any sense of what we're supposed to be as the church, we have to understand how we are the church. And we see that described in verses 19 through 21, and that's where we'll begin this morning. Let's jump in verses 19 through 21, how we are the church. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. We'll stop there. Uh, to understand what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, there, there are some really important categories that we need to have a, a, a working knowledge of, categories that we really don't have a cultural context for in, in our day and age. And it really begs the question, have you ever wondered why God waited as long as he did before sending Jesus into the world to die for our sins? Right? Have you ever wondered why he planned such a long history with Israel before Jesus? Right? Why, why did he take so long before Jesus, God the Son, would be sent to take on flesh and dwell among us? Some might wrongly assume or conclude that, that history was just running its course and, and God was just trying to figure out the best time for Jesus to come and, and that God wanted to send Jesus for centuries, but the stars just never really aligned and he just couldn't pull it off until finally he was able to do it about 2,000 years ago. But see, the, the Bible doesn't give any room for that kind of conclusion because, see, the, the whole Old Testament Right? And indeed, the whole of Scripture pictures God as ruling over history, not frustrated by history. Take, for example, the prophet Daniel. In Daniel chapter 2, here's what he says. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him, and it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. So, so kings don't rise and fall on their own. And times and epochs, those significant periods of history, don't change on their own. God governs all of it. A few chapters later in Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, speaking of God, says this, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? So it would be a huge mistake to think that history was just running its course and God was just waiting for something to happen that would allow him to get Jesus into the picture at a good time. Right? And additionally, 
Scripture actually reveals to us that God had planned for Jesus to come and die and give us the grace of forgiveness even before the history of the world began. Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.9, it tells us God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purposes and grace which he has granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So think about that, that God graciously planned our forgiveness in Christ from all eternity, from before creation. God rules history, and he accomplishes without difficulty his plans and his purposes for his glory. So why then? Is there such a long history of dealings with Israel before sending Jesus into the world? Right? God could have planned to send Jesus right after the fall of Adam and Eve. God could have planned to send Jesus right after the the flood in Noah's day. Right? Or he could have planned to send Jesus uh, on the days uh, in the bondage uh, that the, the Israelites experienced in Egypt. Why the long delay? Well, one answer is that when Jesus, God in the flesh, comes into the world, there needed to be some categories in place to make sense of who he is and what he accomplished on behalf of sinners, right? We need to have the history of the Old Testament and the history of Israel in order to have a context. And the truth is, it's only in light of that context in the Old Testament categories that we begin to understand the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love and grace and salvation in Christ. Now, let your heart and your mind grab hold of this. That God was guiding the history of the world, particularly the history of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament, as a backdrop to help make sense of the coming of Jesus. Now, in our text this morning, and actually throughout the book of Hebrews, we see some of those categories, right, where we we have to understand these categories in order to understand who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Namely, what we see in our our passage is this category of high priest or of great priest in verse 21. This category is, is, is somewhat foreign for us now because we don't really have high priest running around. We don't really understand even what that context means. So I want to flesh this out because it's super important that we understand exactly what Jesus has done for us. So uh, if you do have your Bibles, turn back to Hebrews chapter 5. I think it may be on the screen as well. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews gives us a glimpse of who high priests were in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 helps us understand high priests. Here's what it says. For every high priest... Chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Okay, so, so the high priest came from among men and were appointed on behalf of the people to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for sins. All right, so obviously there's, there's a ton going on here, but, but to break it down, there is a God 
There is sin. And this sin has created a barrier between God and the people. But God has graciously made a provision for for being reconciled to the people. He has ordained that there be a human priest who would be a go-between. And that these priests would, would offer sacrifices. That there would be the shedding of blood with the animal sacrifice. And the whole point of the temple and sacrificial and priestly system was to highlight this great need to be reconciled to God. Right? And, 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 and in this scene and in the context of the high priest in the Old Testament, there was in the tabernacle or in the temple the holy of holies. Right, the holy place, as verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10 describes it, it was separated from the rest of the temple with a curtain. It represented and truly was the very presence of God. And only the high priest could enter the holy of holies, and that only once a year. Okay, so, so only on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, was the high priest allowed to enter into the holy of holies, to enter into the presence of God. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice that he had offered for the sins of the people and for his own sins. And the people of Israel and the high priest would repeat this year after year after year. And the whole point is, the whole history of Israel, the, the priestly and sacrificial and temple system, the whole point was to show that it was imperfect. It was an imperfect sacrifice. It, was, it wasn't eternal. It was, it was performed by a priest who himself needed atonement for sins. See, it was all inadequate. It was all incomplete. And it was all meant to point to Jesus. And so what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, by identifying Jesus as our great priest is absolutely amazing, right? That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is our ultimate, more than adequate, perfect and eternal great high priest through his perfect life as the spotless lamb and his substitutionary death on the cross, that the blood that he shed on behalf of your sin, on behalf of my sin, defeating sin and death and raising from the dead on the third day and the mercy and forgiveness that he offers to all who trust and believe, the curtain is now open. It's torn in two. He is our great, perfect, complete high priest. And now, back to Hebrews chapter 10, what our passage is telling us is that we all have access to the very presence of God. And because the guilt of sin and stain of sin is washed completely, adequately, perfectly by his blood, we stand justified, reconciled in the presence of a holy God. Because our great high priest we can approach his throne in confidence. Not because of anything we've done, but because of who he is and what he's accomplished for sinners like you and me. What amazing grace. Amen? Our great high priest stands over the house of God, stands over the church, and this is how we are the church. Praise his name. And understanding that, we can begin to understand who we're supposed to be as the church. And only in light of that, that we can understand who we're supposed to be as the church. And and, and what we learn is that we're supposed to be a particular kind of people, 
a particular kind of community. Uh, The first thing we see in verse 22 is that we are to be a people drawing near to God in faith. Verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. One of the sweetest blessings of the cross of Jesus Christ is that the curtain of separation has been torn in two. Right? So let your heart grab hold of this. No longer are the holy places open only to the high priest and only once a year. Now each of us, each of God's children, have been welcomed to come with confidence into God's presence and not just once a year. Let us with confidence draw near to God. Think about that. We with all of our sin, with all of our weakness, with all of our failures, are welcome to do what should absolutely blow our minds, that we are not only tolerated by God at a distance, we are welcomed into intimate, personal communion with the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator, sovereign God and Savior of the world. We, as, as unholy as we are, are told to go with confidence into his holy presence. The blood of Jesus has made what was impossible possible. And for the writer of Hebrews, there's only one right response to the access we now have to God through Jesus. And he says, draw near. Draw near to him with a sincere heart, full assurance of faith. What he's saying, just trust him completely, right? No hesitation. He's trustworthy. In the whirlwind of life, right, in the confusion and, and, and pain and, and difficulty that can come, draw near in faith. Trust him. He is faithful. Amen? And that brings us to the second characteristic that we see of the church, to hold fast to the gospel and hope. It tells us in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that, is that God has made promises to his people and that he will undoubtedly keep those promises. And that we should therefore hold fast to hope, be confident in the future, that God is holding the future in his hands. It's the confidence that God is faithful, that he is for you, that he is near, that he's not distant. Even when we can't trace him, that he will meet every single need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That he is working out all things in his infinite wisdom and power, even the darkest, most difficult struggles of your life, he is working out for his glory and for your good as his child. Hold fast to that hope. See, the reality is, is that things do happen, though, in life, right? That, that we almost can't, we can't trace him, right? Tragedy strike. And we're like, where, God, where, where are you? Even this last week, Losing a, 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 a beloved uh, person from, from even our own church in the Meacham family. A, a 30 year old, 31-year-old g- mother of a two-year-old. 
tragically, tragically passes away. I don't have all the answers for that. But what I can tell you with confidence is that even when we can't understand it, and especially when we can't understand it, that God is faithful to his promise. That he, in his infinite wisdom and power, is working out even the most dark and difficult struggles of life, working things out for his glory and for your good. He's faithful. So keep holding on. Hold fast to that hope. And that, that brings us to the third characteristic that we see outlined, and that's to consider how to stir up and encourage one another to love and good works. It tells us in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These verses are, are, are really the key to understanding what the church community is supposed to be. One of the key words that we see here uh, is the Greek word episynagogue, translated as, as meet together or meeting together. It's where we get the word synagogue, and it means a congregation. So don't forsake the, the congregation. I love what Tim Keller says in, in commenting on these two verses, particularly verse 25. He says this, it's important to see that a congregation is different than an aggregation. An aggregation is just a collection of individuals who come together to listen to a speaker or come to an event, but a congregation is very different, he says. An aggregation is like a bag of marbles with the marbles slipping and sliding all over each other, but a congregation is like a cluster of grapes which all the grapes are organically related to each other. A congregation is a community in which all aspects of the members' lives touch. So we don't just come together to hear a speaker, right, or to have an experience. You are, as the church, a community Right? You, you, you pray together, you learn together, you live life together, you love together, you eat together, you confess your sins together. Uh, the key even to understanding what this congregation, what this meeting together, what this Christian community is, is actually another word that we see uh, that's said in verses 24 and 25, and that's the word one another. Right? This one anothering. It says, let's stir up one another. Let's encourage one another. It's a word that means mutuality. All right, so, so, so track with me here. When you come to church, according to the New, New Testament, it, it's a place you go not only to be taught, not only to be counseled and shepherd, you go, according to the New Testament, to mutually minister, to, to teach one another counsel one another, confess sins to one another, admonish one another, bear burdens and weep with one another, to share victories with one another. It's mutual. See, this, this verse is not just talking about going to corporate worship on the Lord's Day. Right? Although it certainly means that, it means so much more. See, if all you're doing is showing up for church on Sunday and, and checking it off your list and, and you miss the deep mutual ministry, the one anothering, then you're missing it. 
See, don't get me wrong. Uh, on Sunday morning, from the pulpit, corporate worship, actively engaging in God's word, seeing the gospel and the sacraments, hearing the gospel preached by pastors and ministers of the gospel, it's vitally important. But the deep mutual ministry, the deep spiritual fellowship in the gospel between brothers and sisters in Christ, in, in which you get into each other's lives, Right? When, you, when you let each other into your lives and, and you open up with your hurts and your problems and your needs and you hold each other accountable and you really get in, that's what verse 24 and 25 are, are particularly getting at. That is what the community is meant to be. You can come to church every week and not do this at all. And if that's the case, you're entirely missing what church is meant to be. And maybe that's why so many people don't really care much for the church. You have to be cemented into Christian community because of how we are the church, right? The awesome reality that we have a great high priest in Christ, that we can come confidently before the throne of grace into the very presence of God, drawing near, holding fast because of the cleansing blood of Jesus. We are called to be a particular kind of community that through his presence being used by God to spur one another on to be used by God to conform one another more and more into the image of Jesus through community and life together. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. So church, let us consider, right? Let us ponder, let us reflect, let us listen to each other. Let, let us understand each other's hopes and, and aspirations, let us, let us seek after this time, not only in corporate worship, but in mutual life together. That, that we would be confessing our sins and our struggles, that we would, we would be uh, working through our strengths and our weaknesses and actively thinking, how can I engage intentionally and be used to foster growth, to spur on love and good works in my brothers and sisters? And, and, and listen, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking to yourself, oh yeah, I could really, I, I really could help this person grow. I need to tell them something because I know that they're just not getting this. And if I could just tell them maybe a little bit, I, I hear you, Dave, I'm tracking with you. Very often, effective stirring one another up is not in what you say. Not in, not in telling someone what to do. It's actually in, in what you do, right? Showing a, a genuine care, seeking intentionally a relationship. It's our action that stirs up one another. Often the most effective way to encourage and stir up one another to love and good works is to tangibly, actively demonstrate that love and do those good works. So let us be a church who is profoundly aware of how we are the church with Christ as our great high priest 
and understand who we're supposed to be, drawing near to God in faith, holding fast to the gospel, stirring up and encouraging one another in love and good works. That's why we love the church. And listen, if we can be that kind of friend to our Savior's bride, imagine what kind of work God will do through this ministry of Coral Ridge. Let those characteristics define who we are. Amen.